and welcome to the Tabletops Text Podcast. We are your technicians. I'm Skylar Nichol, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dean Arneson. Hey there. So today we are doing uh, a review of two of our favorite games, Terra Mystica and Above and Below. So each of these we talked about briefly last week uh, because they're strong in action economy themes, and so we're going to touch into them. So the first game we're going to talk about is Terra Mystica. Terra Mystica is an empire-building game. It's definitely like the more difficult game to start out playing. Um, yeah, that's for sure. It's certainly not Monopoly. It's definitely more complex than that. Why don't you go into the basics and how you play? So Terra Mystica, you, uh, similar to a lot of Empire Builder games, you start with a couple of spots on the map that you can build off from. Uh, and you're going to be building and upgrading buildings throughout the game. And you're going, it's kind of, you get points for just doing stuff, but if you time the way that you get points, you're going to do way, way better in the game. Right. It's not super clear on how you're going to get all the points in the game. There's a lot of different ways to get it. Typically, you just, you're going to be building and getting points for your buildings if you're doing things right. Uh, there's uh, rounds in this game, so there's six rounds, and certain rounds will give you certain bonuses depending on if you do the right thing during that round. And those will be shuffled depending on you know which game, like which time you're playing. Every time you play, it'll be a different setup. Yeah. So each race, of which there are fourteen, uh, uh, there are fourteen races, but. Each race has one card that's double-sided, so there's seven races in play at a time. Uh, right. Each of them has a unique color, so they're easy to tell on the board, which is really nice. But they also have a matching space on the board, uh, like the the nomads are desert dwellers, or the uh, giants are dwell in the wasteland, which are red. And that's an easy way to tell on the board who owns what territory. And right. So you start off in each territory uh, that is your marked color. And then over the course of the game, you'll change the colors of territories. You'll terraform to the, cut, the type of environment your, uh, your race likes, and you can build on it then. Yeah. So this is like a really, really unusual way of limiting players to specific areas and preventing them from just like on mass expanding. Right. This is one of many unique aspects of Terra Mystica. Yes. And I think it helps from a design standpoint, we'll get to more of this later, but it helps to make it so that there's not a contest for like the best square on the board. Like for example, if you're playing Catan, everyone can build on the most likely dice to be rolled eight and six. But in Terra Mystica, you can only build on like, what is it? Five or six different squares to start the game. Yeah, I think I think there's like eight squares per race. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. And then some are better than others because they have the way you terraform, you have to bring it like around a circle. So it takes longer to get from like a swamp to a desert than it takes to get to like a wasteland to a desert. Yeah. So like you kind of just get used to that and when you're planning your first placements you'll place somewhere that's close to uh that has areas next to you that are close to and you can upgrade into so another big thing is each of the buildings has an upgrade path so they all start as a dwelling uh which produces workers which are one of the base resources in the game but then you can upgrade it to a trading house, which produces coins uh, instead of workers. And then from there, you can upgrade it to your stronghold, which usually has a big special ability. Or you can upgrade it to a temple, and the temple gives you other abilities and produces priests. Yes. So, like, the, the game starts out with a lot of unanswered questions. And you, your first playthrough, don't be afraid to just try something and you'll figure out, oh, this is what it does. <laughs> yeah, so this is like, like we said earlier, it's a difficult game to approach. I've only played Paramiska, I think, four times, maybe. 
Okay. Um, and, you know, because of that, I don't have a lot of experience with the game and, like, some of the traps in the economy, but I still feel like I have a solid approach because of the way that I deal with turn one. You have to look at turn one as, like, the setup for the rest of the game because there's only six rounds, and so round one, you really want to do, like, as much engine building as possible because if you're building engines round three or beyond, you're going to run into problems because there's only three more rounds and everyone's sitting there making points during the rounds and you're still trying to like set up your economy and it's like, that's not, it's not going to work. And so one of the things that I do is I like, once I pick my race, I just like go to the forums and say, what, what do you do with this race? Like what's the turn one thing that you do here? Because if you do a bad turn one, you could lose the entire game. You can sit there for two hours and be like, well, I can still play. I can still have fun. But, <laughs> but I'm not winning this but game. But I'm not going to win. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So, yeah, that's super important in this game is every race starts out at virtually the exact same amount of resources. And so almost everyone has the same options. Mm-hmm. to to do on on round one yeah and for almost every race the best round one is to build your stronghold uh so you'll you'll take you'll upgrade one of your dwellings to a trading house and you'll upgrade it to a stronghold and that's like the end of round one yeah but your stronghold usually has a special a really cool special ability that will generate a lot of value throughout the game yeah. and so you want to do it as soon as possible Especially on certain races, yeah. Yeah. For some races, uh, namely the Chaos Magicians and the Darklings, they need to build a temple on round one, or else they're out of the game, usually. Yeah. And so, but in general, you you shouldn't just be expanding. You should be building up and upgrading hardcore in round one. Uh, another interesting thing, uh, so there's something called Power, uh, we'll get into this more in the design section for Terra Mystica today, but you are encouraged not only in the cost of your upgrades, but also in uh, a specific resource called power that you have to be next to other players to get. Yeah. And so it allows you to spend points to get uh, value in the game. You can spend for like resources and stuff. So that's, it's a really cool mechanic, and it's one of the more innovative, unique things in the game, and there's a lot of unique stuff going on. So we'll talk about that a bit more. So in summary, for the basics, if you're playing this game for the first time, find out what your race is, find out what a good opening looks like, however maybe the player you're playing with will know, or you can look it up. And then you want to look at the round bonuses and determine when you're going to build your dwellings, when you're going to upgrade your town halls, etc. Um, because if you can get a good opening, get points throughout the game as you go through the different round bonuses, you're going to end up with a pretty decent score. Yeah, that, that's that's the really big thing, is your round bonuses will make or break your game. And you get to choose your race after you see the round bonuses, which, once you have more experience, you can kind of have affect your plans. But you should always try to get points for the round bonus every single round. Yeah. That's gonna be that's gonna be a large chunk, usually half your points, give or take, throughout the course of the game. Yeah. And the reason you gotta go through these round bonuses is because there's no way you're gonna get a winning score without the round bonuses. They kinda seem small. When I first played, it was like, oh yeah, it's two points per dwelling. That doesn't matter. <laughs> but if you think about it, a lot of games like this have endgame scoring where it's like you get points for all these things. Termisca does have endgame scoring, but a majority of the points are gained during the game. Yeah. Um, because you can get up to 16 points for having like the biggest empire, the number of buildings you have connected. Um, you can get up to... 32 points if you go like really into like the religion side the cult track mm-hmm. um, but you can still score over 90 points if you play really well and so 60 to 40 points can come like during the game if you're really good yeah 
So like we're going to go into a little bit more like in-depth kind of technical strategy at this point. Uh, we covered the basics and that's going to be our format for each of our games that we review. We'll do kind of a basic overview of how to improve your gameplay a little bit. We'll do a little bit more technical in-depth overview. And then we're going to do an overview of the design and what we think of it and how uh, any critiques or obviously praise that we have for it as well. So it's common for a really good, uh, nice high scoring game of Terra for the winning player or players to get over a hundred points. So that would be scoring more than 80 points total. Cause you start at 20 points. Uh, so Dean, where do you get a hundred points? Like how do you plan out your hundred plus points for the game? Well, the tricky thing is it depends on the race that you're in. Okay. Um, you, there's points that you can get from a variety of locations. There's the cult track. There's buildings. Uh, the, the end scheme scoring I talked about just a second ago. Um, there's points bonuses for the rounds that you get, for building certain structures or doing certain things. Um, there's also the, what you might call it, oh, the town bonuses. When you oh, construct yeah. a town, you can get points for that. Um, some races will have special abilities that will give them points as well. Um, there's also these favors that you can get. Like there's, 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 so there's, more, there's actually more than that too. I think there's like one or two more things. There's yeah. like a bunch of different sources of points. Okay. So, uh, so a big thing that we want to break down is that if by chance you happened to get the largest empire and all the points on the cult, on the cult track. That's forty eight points, but you still have thirty two or more points that you need to be scoring. So, like, it's important you have to be getting points during the game for the round bonuses. Yeah, that's your priority, especially if you're a race that isn't adept at building. You know, the nomads, for example, can build fairly easily because their terraforming is easier. Mm-hmm. but they don't get as many points from other things during the game. And so you can't just plan to have the biggest empire in the game. Yeah, so the strongest races in the game, uh, like, the game is not perfectly balanced. I don't think any game is, but it does feel very balanced. But the strongest races in the game are races that naturally accrue points by doing what they do anyway. So the Darklings are really good because you just get points for terraforming, which you have to do anyway. The alchemists are really good because you get points for making gold, which you do anyway. The halflings are really good because you get points whenever you terraform, which you do anyway. The dwarves are really good because you get points whenever you expand anywhere, which you would do anyway. Yeah. I don't know a ton about the in-depth strategy of the different races, but it appears to me that the reason they're so powerful is because they're consistent. Yeah. You can always have those points no matter how the round bonuses are laid out. Because sometimes you're going to have, you know, build your stronghold on the first round. In some races, it's not going to happen for them. It's not wise to do that. Um, and so just depending on the order of the round bonuses, some races can get snubbed early on just because they don't have another way to make points besides round bonuses. Round bonuses get blocked. But Darklings, they can just dig, right? They can always dig. Mm-hmm. No matter what the round bonus looks like, so uh, it's important to like figure out those synergies too. So you get to look at the round bonuses before you pick races, and if you like, if the priest bonus is out, uh, there's a bonus that you can get for having a priest or for the bonus priests that you get, that's really good for Dark Lips, especially mm-hmm. early, because they have to use priests today. But for races, if your first turn round bonus is for digging, like, that doesn't incentivize, like, any race, because you just want to do that anyway. Right. It lines up naturally with what every empire is going to do. They're always going to want to terraform the but if like two or three of the round point bonuses are for placing dwellings, that really favors like nomads or halflings or dwarves, where you have a lot of or mermaids, where you have a lot of ability to expand quickly, and you want to be placing lots of dwellings and making lots of workers. Um. Oh. Oh yeah. So. 
a really unique thing about Terra Mystica is like in so in something like Sellers of Catan, you have a village that you upgrade to a city, and the, the city is strictly better than the village. Right. Like if you can upgrade, the answer is like ninety nine percent yes. Yeah. But in Terra Mystica, the buildings produce different resources depending on what they are. Right. So in Terra Mystica, if you have a dwelling, every upkeep bit, every beginning of the round, you get a worker. Um, and it ramps up as you build more dwellings. You'll get more workers for more dwellings. Uh, but town halls, if you upgrade a dwelling to a town hall, it no longer produces workers. It produces gold and power. Yeah. And that wraps up. So you can't just build all the dwellings you're ever going to build, upgrade all of them to town hall, upgrade all of them again, because you're going to need to have the worker income still in place. Also, there's this pretty strict number of bonus buildings. So I think you have 10, like 10 dwellings, but you only can have a maximum of four trading houses, one stronghold, three temples, and one uh, sanctuary, which is like a super temple. Yeah. And so, like, if you're trying to produce tons of gold, like, the most you can do for most races is 12 gold a turn if you have all of your trading houses out. And so, it's pretty easy because virtually every action in the game requires uh, workers and gold. And so, if you're strictly building outwards and you have tons of dwellings, you're going to have tons of workers, but you're going to be super out on gold. Right, and so you're in order to prevent these bottlenecks, you have to you have to balance your economy of building out versus building up. Yeah, there's a certain amount of flexibility here because you can turn a worker into a coin as like a free action, but that is like really painful to do. Yeah, it's it's a it's a serious downgrade. Yeah, and so when you're planning out like your rounds, you want to make sure you have the right number of workers and the right number of coin to like build the things you want to build. And if you're short, you need to start looking towards other things that can help patch up those holes, like power actions or passing early. Oh yeah. So we haven't even talked about the, the turn books. So there in the game, there are these tokens and they modify your income for one round. Yeah. And uh, each of them have a unique attribute or ability. Some of them give you like an extra worker. There's one that gives you an extra six gold, which is always everyone's competing for that one because it's just good. Typically good. Uh, and then you've got a lot of things going on, which uh, will influence your needs from one round to the next. And that allows you to adjust. Whenever you pass, you'll trade in the one that you have and you'll pick from like the three remaining ones right. on uh, what you want. So sometimes someone will pass and they'll give up the really good one. Right. And it's usually best to just pass and take it unless you really have something that you have to do this round because the majority, like all of your extra resources, all of your extra workers, coins will hold over until the next round and you can just spend them then and do your upgrades then instead and you get your bonus that you want anyway. Yeah, so for example, if you have enough resources, you have your worker and some coin to build a dwelling and... Someone passes the six gold, and you know that you need six extra gold next round because you're trying to build like three things in the round bonus. Who cares about the dwelling, especially if you don't need the extra worker? You know. Yeah. Which frequently, if you're out of cash, you usually have extra workers. Yeah, lots of times. And so the extra dwelling, although it seems like it'd be beneficial to increase that worker production as soon as possible, you're really only getting one extra worker by building it around early when you could just save building the dwelling for the next round, get the six gold and build the dwelling next round anyway. In addition, uh, the earlier you pass, uh, so there's two variants. There's either the uh, turn order is based on passing order, uh, which was introduced in the expansion, or the first person to pull, the first player to pass is the first player for the next round. 
Yeah. And that is, that influences a lot of things because one of the areas of competition uh, are something called power actions. So you have this power, uh, which you gain from other players building by you. And you can use that to take power actions. And these are really strong exchange rates that you can exchange your power for like two extra workers or a priest or seven gold or uh, terraforming at, at a good rate. And so these are really com- – these are heavily competed for, especially in the first part of a round. And if you are the first player or the second player on the round, then – you have a much greater chance of finding, of being able to take those power actions and those get you a lot of advantage, especially in the mid and late game. Right. Absolutely. Power actions can be like, I mean, obviously they're the thing that's competed for. Once someone takes one, you can't take it. Yeah. So the power actions reset each round, but they're only usable once per round. Right. So just, Build your dwellings after you take your power actions. Find out the round so that you don't wait until the end of round and say, oh, I need two more shovels now. You should think about the whole round first and then say, oh, I need the two shovels. I'm going to take that power action right now. And then I'll worry about doing the other actions. Yeah. So uh, the last big thing that we want to hit on for uh, like majorly improving your play is planning out your towns. So towns have certain requirements, and that's seven power worth of buildings. Uh, so dwellings are worth one, trading houses and temple are worth two, and then your super buildings, your stronghold, and your sanctuary are each worth three. So you need seven total power that are connected to each other and at least four buildings. Right. There are a few exceptions, but that's the general rule. And then uh, and you start with two dwellings anywhere on the map, pretty much, uh, at the start of the game. And so it's pretty common that you'll kind of expand that one into uh, a town. You'll expand each of those into a town because you have to grow out from where you place. Right. But uh, certain, uh, certain races are more adept at expanding to a third town. If you're playing correctly... Almost every player should get two towns. Yeah. And there are 10 town bonuses. So it works out pretty pretty well. If you are playing the witches, the mermaids, or the nomads, you should get three towns if you're playing optimally. Right, because that's one of the ways your your race gets points compared to like the dark things you talked about. They just get points for digging. Yeah, right. Their advantage is getting points from the extra town. And so uh, a big thing is one. So if you you can't expand one town into two towns, right? And so they have to be separated by like a river or something, right? Yeah, or at least sufficient distance. And so what you have to do is you have to increase your shipping, which is your ability to move across water, uh, at least once. And that allows you to place a new, like start a new town far enough away from your previous town that they don't become one town before you complete both. Right. So towns are a contiguous block of buildings, but you can separate them using water. You can only go across the water with shipping. Yeah. So there is one of the the round bonus tiles that you can pick from that gives you a bonus shipping uh, during that round. So this, like, this is a really tactical one. It's a really low pick. Like right. for a lot it's of one people, of the passing cards that you can pick. Yeah. So a lot of people do not pick up this token regularly, especially because they don't appreciate it for what it exists for. Hmm. So this thing allows you to get out of heavily crowded areas and it allows you to begin a new town. So you can so it gives you just that extra little blip of shipping to get across the water and start developing away from other people so you can build outwards. And that's how you can easily start on a second or third town. Right, especially for races, like you said, that are good at doing it. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the design of this game. Because, oh, yeah. You know, we're talking about the details of how to play within the rules, but what about the rules themselves? What do you think of them? So, 
Oh my gosh. I could go on about Terra Mystica for hours. Sadly, we only have, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. Oh no. But, <laughs> but uh, one of the big thing is that there is so much, uh, there's so much competition without, yeah. like, it's hard to, like, strictly cut other people out of the game. Right, you're not destroying their resources. You're just competing for their resources. Yeah. So the, you you compete on the board for area. You compete in the religion and the cult tracks for influence there, and those are worth points. You compete along the power action axis where you're trying to get those, and all of those kind of come into. There's a lot of choices to make. Yeah. And there's a lot of suboptimal choices you can make, but it gives you a lot of depth for players naturally balancing each other out. Right. And you don't just like sit there and play the game. Like I'm, I really am not a huge fan of social solitaire where it's like, Oh, let's have my friends over. And I'm just going to like, not like we're going to play a game, but we're just kind of like do our own thing and not care about each other. Low interaction, like low yeah. player interaction. It's just like, why, why am I, why am I playing this? And there's huge, massive amounts of player interaction in Terra Mystica. Even if you aren't like strictly like cutting people off the whole time, which I really, really, really like. Uh, what about you, Dean? What are your thoughts? Um, I think Terra Mystica has good and bad things. Yeah. I think both of those things come from like how many rules there are total in the game. So what you're talking about, all these different ways that you can interact, they exist because there's all these different avenues, different resources that you can use on your turn. There's eight separate actions you can do. There's power, gold, workers, priests, there's all these different resources for you. And so it gives you like a complex way to interact with your opponents. At the same time, because the game is so expansive, I feel like it runs into balance issues. Yeah. Like different races, they try to make their bonuses affect the way the game plays evenly. Like they try to make their bonuses work the same, but some of them just aren't worth the same. Like they're just not as good. By the way, don't play giants. Yeah, giants are pretty mediocre. I mean, giants are probably the worst. The giants are pretty much the worst race. They just don't have a competitive advantage. (laughs) Right, and that can be a little off-putting, I think, for new players. They're like, yeah, just give me the red one. And they end up with giants. And experienced player just grabs the alchemists or whatever. And there's little that the new player can do without some, like, outsider or rather insider information about the game. Yeah, I'm personally working on a on some house rules to make some of the weaker races more competitive. Uh, but yeah, like yeah, typically they, you can pick your race though, so it's not yes technically that big of a deal. But just don't assign your race randomly. Yeah, it's it can be hard that way. the The game is not perfectly balanced, which is true. But a good player with a bad race can still easily outperform a bad player with a good race. Oh, absolutely. Which there's so many decisions you can make. Yeah. And your your race does offer you competitive advantages in certain areas, but strictly good play of playing to the playing to the round bonuses, uh, making good choices and optimizing your turns is going to make a world of difference. Right. Yeah. No, like the difference between the best races is pretty small. So, what do you think about the adjacency rules in Terra Mystica? Okay, so Terra Mystica, we talked about power a little bit earlier, and he'll go into more detail, but if you build close to people, you get power when people next to you upgrade their buildings. And so that's like counterintuitive, right? Because you're trying to build the biggest empire, so wouldn't you place in the spot that has like the most room to expand? That's not the case in Terra Mystica. You have to strike a balance between proximity and distance with your opponents. Um, not only do you get the power, but you also have cheaper upgrades for your town, no, trading house. Trading house, yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, there's like, in some games, it's like, you want to just be maximal with something. You want to be as close to someone or as far away from someone as possible. 
But in this game, you kind of have to strike a balance. You want to be close to players, but not so close that you don't have an understand. Yeah. So uh, in the the new Terra Mystica Gaia project, there's even more things you can do, but it still maintains this same. You get there are advantages to being close to people and advantages to being far away from people, which is really really good because the game state naturally balances itself. Right. Uh, also, uh, I want to get into power real quick because, in terms of design, like power is so cool. Like, Man, it's, we get into so many arguments about power, uh, <laughs> especially with our friend Luke. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Go okay. on. Go on. So, so power is an essential portion of this game, and it's definitely one of the most innovative mechanics in the game. So, each of your buildings is worth a certain amount of power. It can generate a certain amount of power. So whenever a player builds or upgrades next to a building that you own, uh, you can trade in a number of points for that many plus one power. So like if you had three power worth of buildings next to your opponent and they upgraded, you could trade two power for or two points for three power. Right. But it's it's all or nothing. Like if you have six power worth of buildings, which does happen next to someone that upgrades, you can't do like, oh, I'm going to get three power for two points. It's six power for five or zero. Yeah. <laughs> but this power, you you move it in these different bowls. It's only active in one of the bowls. And you can spend it from there for the power actions, or you can always, as a free action on your turn, spend it, spend five for a priest, three for a worker, or one for one gold. So you can, like, if you have three power lying around, you can just, like, spend three of it for three gold and power out the rest of your turn. Pun totally intended. But the... The interesting thing is you have to strike this balance of like what's a what's a good power trade. And I found in my experience, obviously, if you're gonna get free power, like you only have a dwelling next to them, do it every time. It's it's free, it's free, it's strict value. And then usually the rate of three power for two points is decent, but after that only if you're getting like strict advantage right now from it should you be trading more than uh, more than three points per power. Yeah, it is pretty rare that that situation arises where you're getting that much power. And the rule of thumb you said, like three at most points being given away is probably a good one. Um, the only exception I would say is if you have specific plans for that extra power. Yeah. You know, like you just need that extra bump this turn so that you can get some points. I mean, obviously, obviously that's like you can do the math of like, oh, I'm going to spend two points now, but it's going to net me three points, which means it does net you. So you're going to get five points, but nets you three. Like that's still strictly better than having two. Five is better than two. (laughs) Yeah. The other interesting thing about power is like you're moving it up to these bowls. You have to move from the lowest bowl first. Mm -hmm. And so and you can only spend from the highest bowl. And so you have a certain number of chips in your bowls total. Twelve. Um, and one of the things you can do is the middle bowl, the second bowl, you can burn one of your chips and remove it from all your bowls permanently in order to move another chip from bowl two to bowl three. And so you can reduce the total number of chips in circulation because when you spend your chips, they go back to one. And when you do this, it kind of speeds up the frequency of when you can use the power. Mm-hmm. It doesn't increase the num the total number technically, but you get to use them more frequently, which can be an advantage. But sometimes you want a turn where you can spend all twelve of your power from both three and do one power turn. But some people prefer to separate it out and say, like, I'm just going to take one power action per round. Yeah. In some ways, it makes sense. Uh, I'm definitely a fan of, like, burning a lot of power, especially because you can generate a good advantage in the early and the early mid-game. And then you're just going to have power pretty regularly uh, circulating, and so you can consistently take a power action, like, every round. Yeah, you just don't want to go below four. Four, really? You do go to four? I've 
totally can't afford. It prevents you from taking some power actions ever. Uh, only one of them. It only re- prevents you from taking one of them. And I was okay. playing halflings, and I don't need the digging action. I see. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But for most for most races, you want to stay at or above seven power in your pool. Yeah, but you can go down to that number pretty quickly. Yeah, easily. And it's usually pretty decent, too. Okay, so... We uh, talked about Terramistica for half an hour now. Let's give Above and Below some love. Hey, hey, we, we, need, to, we need to give Terramistica our ratings. Oh, yeah, how so, many sprockets? So, so we're going to go over our rating system real quick so that you guys can understand. I, I thought about doing it at the beginning of the cast, but then you'd probably forget it over the course of a half hour. And so our rating system, we're going to rate from zero out of... Uh, from zero to five sprockets. So sprocket is like a gear with the chain attached. It's a, it's a real thing. I promise. Look, look at the back of your bike. <laughs> <laughs> so condescending. <laughs> hey, I've had people that be like, what, what is this word? Fair. And so we're going to rate from zero to five sprockets. So a zero sprocket game is strictly, obviously these are our opinions, but do not play this game. Like it's, it's worthless. Like there's, you would never want to spend a half hour, hour, or hour and a half playing this game. Right, at least not for the game itself. Yeah. Uh, so well, you're going to see very, very few games of, on a zero scale. Like These are things like uh, Shoots and Ladders of Candyland, where there there is literally no influence of your player on the game. Uh, I, I have uh, I have alternate Candyland rules that you can implement with your younglings. If uh, if you are, <laughs> if they need you to play Candyland, uh, I will happily provide you with my alternate rule set, which should at least slightly improve your ability to play. Bring it up to like two star, maybe. Uh, like a one and a half, <laughs> like okay, one and a half, right, so right. maybe even two, but like sprocket. Yeah, not star. It's not star. Sprockets. Um, <laughs> So uh, a one to two star game. These are games that are, in our opinion, below average. Uh, like you can play them, especially if there's someone in your family or in your play group that really wants to play it. But like, I wouldn't spend my money on it. I wouldn't curate the game. And uh, it's probably fine, but not interesting. Uh, once you get to three sprockets, that's that's a decent game. Like this is this is what we consider an average. That uh, I'm not gonna play. I'm not gonna pull this out at every time we play. But maybe you know once every month or two. Right. Uh, these are also games that I probably would not buy personally, uh, just because I have a limited resources. College students, by the way. And so these are games that. Some people may like, and they can easily fall into like four sprockets for some people. But I, we would not personally invest in or curate in our collections. Right. Uh, four sprocket and five sprocket games. These are like top tier games. These are games that you would actively want to curate. Uh, that you'll probably pull out once a month or more, so they're actually going to hit the table and not just sit in your closet. And these are games with a lot of depth, uh, a lot of choices, and that are really fun to play. Like, there's a lot of things that you can, there's a lot of weight you can do, things you can do. Right. I think it's important to note that we do have a slight bias towards uh, more complicated games. Definitely. We do like games that have interesting concepts and interactions that you can play with, and those weigh more heavily in our mind than, for example, the quality of figurines for example you know definitely uh much bigger on gameplay than uh than actual products however having a good product in your game is definitely a way to improve the overall feel of your game of course absolutely so uh so like for me uh, i would put settlers of Catan at a three sprocket game sure maybe even like three and a half because it's like it's a solid game it's decent like it's good to play it's also good for teaching new players to play yeah uh i consider carcassonne also a three sprocket game uh probably three and a half even closer to four mm-hmm. because it's just good it's pretty uh, good it's easy to learn too yeah it's really easy to learn and so that's going to be kind of the basis for all of our for all of our ratings so now that we've chatted you off about how we rate games, Dean, why don't you go ahead and give us your out of out of five rating for Dermiska? 
So Terra Mystica, I'm going to give it four sprockets out of five. Okay. Uh, I don't give it the five because of the new player experience. There are other games that I have played that have a similar level of depth, but are easier to approach. And so Terra Mystica, I'm going to give four stars because it's too difficult for a new player to fully grasp how to win the game. Fair enough. Uh, I am giving Terra Mystica five sprockets out of five sprockets. Uh, yes, uh, we are dropping our first review with a five out of five for me. Uh-huh. Uh, Terra Mystica, in my opinion, has all of the workings of just a straight excellent game. There's a lot of player interaction. There's a lot of strategic depth. There's a lot of reasons that you can choose to change things. And it's it's just really, really strong. And it, pro- it pulls its weight a lot in your game cabinet. Mm-hmm. So that's for me. So combined with Dean's four and my five, uh, we give Karen an overall 4.5 out of five sprites. All right, Dean. So let's talk about Above and Below. Ooh, Above and Below. This is like a very, very nice game. Nice. It's, that's that's our it's nice. So Karamistica, like I said, it has all these different rules. Uh, near and far is more manageable, at least for me. Uh, it's a worker placement game. Uh, you have these different workers that you can send to make money. You can go recruit new workers. You can build buildings. You can go exploring the caves together. Um, and you're attempting to score the most points by the end of the game by building these buildings, collecting resources, and etc. Okay, so uh, what? how do worker placement games work? Yeah. Like, how does your economy function? Well, it becomes a balance of getting better workers and getting better buildings. So you want to have as many useful actions in a round as possible. So this is another round-based game where you're going to have a limited number of turns based on how many actions you can take. You don't have to end your turn and the round until you're out of things that you can do. And so you want to make sure that you line up all your resources, your workers, and your gold so that you can take the most number of useful actions you can in a turn. Okay. So uh, a nice thing that Above and Below includes is there are like six buildings that are in every single game, and they're the big like point-scoring buildings. And so they, they give you a number of points and then a number of points based on whatever, something, things that you have, like build how many buildings you have or how much of like the easy to get resources you have or, yeah. And so it's really easy to, uh, to pick one or two of those building strategies and kind of move towards them. And then by the end of the game, you'll have like, you'll have a definite one that you want to get in like round five, six or seven. Yeah, that's one of the nice things about this game is you have a clear goal that you want to go towards. And as long as you avoid some of the pitfalls of this game, you can have a really solid game without worrying too much about lining things up absolutely perfectly. So what do you mean by pitfalls? So in a lot of worker placement games, there are traps, things that waste your resources. Um, And so... One of the things that can waste your resources is going into the caves with workers that are too weak. Different workers have different like stats, so to speak, and the two workers together that go to the caves can score a number of lanterns for each encounter. And if you're not consistently hitting five lanterns when you go into the caves, chances are you could have used those workers to get more resources by doing other types of actions. Yeah, so for each of the caves, you'll get a random encounter, and so you don't necessarily know the rewards, but you know how much you have to get in order to get the rewards. So unless you're going for the low-hanging fruit and you're doing the the bad guy option, Uh the bad guy options usually produce a fair amount of value, even for low lantern counts, but when you get negative reputation, you can actually lose points. 
Yeah, so it's a di- difficult thing to balance. Yeah, like one or two bad guy actions during the game isn't too bad, but it might lose you a few points from at the end of the game, but you can get the resources early on to make sure you go ahead. But if you aren't hitting that five to six lantern break point, you're gonna be you're gonna be just using more you're gonna be wasting workers. Yeah, for sure. Um uh, a big thing too, which I'm not a huge fan of, but is really good for players that are getting into the game. Like this above and below is deep enough on the deep side that there's a lot of things you can do and choices you can make, but it's simple enough on the outside that when you have players that are new to advanced board games in general, they don't feel like super lost. Right. There's also low player competition in yeah. the resources, and so it's not as punishing when your opponent is trying to be aggressive because there's only so much they can do to hurt your strategy. Yeah. So the main place of competition is in the is in the building market. So uh, building gets bought, building gets replaced. But you can also pay a gold to sweep the building market and replace everything. The main thing you have to watch out for is if you're trying for the same strategy as someone else and they buy the payoff building for it, like you'd better hope you have a backup. Right. It's a a good way in this game, you know, to introduce the concept of, you know, resource competition, because if one player is pursuing a certain strategy, at least in this game, it's pretty clear that they're pursuing that strategy. Yeah, that's true. And so moving into the open space in the market, so to speak, is uh, easier to do in this game than others. And definitely, if you're a new player, you don't want to aggressively try to beat out the experienced player in their same strategy. It'd be better off to try and get a better strategy with a more free up market. Okay. So, Dean, why don't you go ahead and bring us into some of the advanced, more technical concepts of how to play more effectively. So the thing that I notice the most is managing the beds that you have. So you have a number of workers that you can get, and so you can recruit extra ones. But every round, you're only going to refresh a number of workers for each bed that you have. And so, for example, if I have 10 workers, but I have two beds, there's going to be eight workers (laughs) staying home. And I spent all those resources for those workers, but I don't get any benefit from having those extra ones. Sure, I get to choose the two that I want, but you can skip that same advantage with having, you know, two extra workers sitting at home. And so it's important to increase your bed count. Um, You don't want to have more beds than you have workers because then obviously you spent resources on beds that could have been spent on workers. And so you want to balance that out. Typically I'll have like one or two more workers than I have beds and aim for like five beds by the end of the game typically. For me anyway, I like having a lot of beds. Yeah, no, I, I think I think four to five beds is the place you want to be. So you start the game with three beds and three workers and most of the time every worker that you buy in the worker market is strictly better than any of the workers that you started with, pretty much. Like, each of the workers are unique in that they, like, some workers can recruit other workers, some workers can build buildings, some workers have better stats for going in the caves. Uh, Fishman uh, is one of the best workers because his caving stats are through the roof. He gives you uh, he gives you two lanterns or three lanterns, and he can recruit other workers. And Yoda, who's like a it's like frog dude. Uh, it's pretty much the same, but he's also a builder. Uh-huh. <laughs> like when you play the game, you'll notice what we're talking about. Like all of the all of the art is very like nice. It's cartoony, but like also painterly. But like it's literally like a fish man. And yeah. so <laughs> and a little, it's not exactly Yoda, but it basically is Yoda. <laughs> So uh, each of the workers that you buy are strictly better than the workers you start with. So you can usually replace them effectively with the new workers that you get. And so as long as you have, you know, four or five beds, you can leave some of your starter workers in like the rest area. Yes. For the rest of the game, you don't care. 
um, the, oh, you can, so when you get resources, you place them on your player board, or you can place them in your supply, or you can sell them to other players. And if you put them in your supply and you place your common ones, so when you score points based on your resources, the further along on your player board they are, the more points they're worth. But you have to, when you place something on your player board, it also increases your income. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do usually to maximize harvesting, and I'm totally serious, like harvesting and pure resource generation uh, is a viable strategy in this game. Is you get something like something rare like stone or an amethyst or paper and you put it in your low slot as soon as possible right so that you get the income bonus but then the next slots after that you can put in like fish or fruit or mushrooms and they're like super super prominent like they're all over the place and then so you can generate those a lot throughout the game and just stack them up on the same spot. So your mushroom slot is worth like two or three points per mushroom. Right. And so you just generate tons of stuff. So usually your first your first resource of whatever it is should go in your first slot. And then hopefully a rare, res- a rare resource or an uncommon resource goes in your second and third slot. And then you just dump a common resource into your fourth fifth or sixth slot and you're just racking up points like (laughs) it gets crazy okay so i want to talk about like the danger of excessive engine building this game okay okay so i mean obviously what we talked about in the previous episode and we know the dangers of excessive engine building you build it too late you're not getting the same amount of value as you would if you built on early and in terra mystica the tricky thing is it can come in a variety of ways so you can have buildings that are engines workers are engines and so sometimes workers are points though because yeah. there is a strategy that involves getting points for every worker you have so maybe having a rabbit strategy maybe, my wife's favorite yeah someone <laughs> i know this guy's wife plays it pretty much every time and the example I gave earlier about having extra workers and not on the fence would be an exception in her case because they're basically points for her. Yeah. You know, they may as well be sitting on her research track because that's how she treats them. Um, <laughs> it's true. And so basically, there's a seven round game. You want to build enough workers to accomplish your strategy, but not too many unless you're pursuing the worker strategy. Mm-hmm. And then. Also, with buildings, there are several buildings that produce one thing per turn, and those are typically only purchased in the first three rounds. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, so, the, so there's three, four types of buildings, I guess. So there's the star buildings, which are the big point buildings at the end of the game. And yep. They're in every single game. And then there are the key buildings and key buildings are kind of like, they're kind of like mini engines of themselves yeah. and they get shuffled up between each game. And so the key buildings that you see uh, will definitely influence like what strategy is, can be better in certain games than mm-hmm. others. Right. Uh, one of our friends, Luke, uh, he got into one of the engines early that produces like a potion every turn. And then there's a building that gives you points for all the potions you have at the end of the game. And he got, he got tons of points because he just had like eight or nine potions at the end of the game. Yeah, just sitting around. (laughs) He could have used them to like heal his workers if they got hurt in mines. But he's like, no, these are worth points, which is smart. Which is definitely smart. It was, it was excellent. And so, uh, you can, so there's, two types of buildings that produce resources and they either come with two of that resource or they come with a refreshing one of that resource every round, every round, but you only get the new one if you previously harvested it. Right. So like you have to dedicate a worker to harvesting that Uh every round. Right. But the advantage with the two ones is that if you buy them later in the game, you can just harvest the two right away, like last round, and get the bonus points or whatever you need. 
Right. I think that the refresh every round ones are certainly harder to set up. Yes. Make them effective. Because you pretty much need a bed and you have to get them in round two, one, two, or three in order for them to be good. Right. But if you can get them to work, they're certainly more valuable than the two time holding. Yeah. So, like, they're at, they're, they're worth like an average four or five points during the game as long as you can dedicate a worker to harvest them. Right. Uh, oh, so in addition to when you go in the caves, if you complete your your caving objective, you get to keep the cave card, and that's like an area of below that you have explored, and you can build an outpost there. So you have your above-ground buildings, uh, and then you have your below-ground buildings, which are called outposts. And each of the outposts are, like, strictly better than the above buildings. All the below buildings are just, they're cheaper for better value. They, like, there's more beds. There's a couple other engines on them. Like, they're really, really strong. Uh, But they make up for that by the fact that you have to spend at least two actions worth of workers to get the cave, and then another action to build on the cave. Right. But... If you're reliably getting two worker worth of value by getting at least five or six lanterns every time, then any buildings that you're building for the below buildings are just straight extra value. And that's a way that you can gain kind of quiet value that they're better, but it doesn't make your board state look worse. Right. Unless people are like really adding up all the details of every building you have. Yeah. The below buildings pull a little more weight. The the only thing that they don't help with is there's a certain one of the star buildings, one of the big point buildings, uh, provides bonus points for every above building you have, and it doesn't count your below buildings. But there's also a building that counts your below buildings. Right. So it just it depends. Yeah. But generally speaking, like, if you can prioritize below buildings whenever you're building, you're going to be gaining a lot more value overall throughout the game. So definitely stress those. Go for them whenever you can. Great. So, Dean, well, let's go ahead and talk about some of the design things that we think are really cool yeah. and that we appreciate about uh, Above and Below. So one of the cool things about Above and Below, we mentioned this a little earlier, is there are different types of workers in this game. And many worker placement games, are just it's like a raw resource. You just place the same type of worker anywhere you want. In this game, though, every worker is different. There are roles that workers have. For example, the two roles are builder and recruiter. Mm-hmm. And then there's also workers that have like different combat or lantern stats for the cave. Yeah, so when you start the game, you start with one builder and one uh, recruiter and one person that can't build or recruit, but they're at least decent in the games. (laughs) Right. The fighter, if you will. Yeah, the the fighter. Um, I always think of, so like, I always have the same one, so I always think of the dude with this really pointy mustache. Uh Uh, But those are... Those are your like three basic types of workers. And as you upgrade them, you'll get workers that can recruit or build and are good in the caves. Like Fishman. He's he's our brother. And, and Yoda. And Yoda. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Zena, Zena uh, she's like this warrior lady, uh, is really good in the caves. Like super good. But she can't build or recruit. But mm. you, you just don't care. Like she's just really good. Uh, and I, I think that's uh, a big thing for a lot of players, too. Uh, a lot of people are positively critical of uh, Ryan Lockett's stuff because he has really strong female characters. He has a really pleasant art style yeah. that's not intimidating for new players right. or for players that like, oh, well, I don't want to play, like, I haven't played, like, Dungeons & Dragons before, so I I just kind of want a game that, like, is normal and feels nice. Right. It has, like, a unique art style. It doesn't draw super heavily from, like, the common fantasy sci-fi art styles that we see in a lot of games. Yeah. It's pretty unique. Uh, it's, it's very... You said painterly earlier? Yeah, it, it is painterly, uh, which um, is a term for the lines are not strong. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But no, yeah, you should go look at the art. Go look it up. Uh, it's called Above and Below. It has art on the cover, of course. Yeah. Uh, art. It's good looking art. And all of his, all of the Red Raven games, uh, which is his company, because he's the, he's the designer and the artist, they all kind of have that art style, which yeah. is nice for marketing too, because you can kind of see like, oh, this is, this is a Ryan Lockett game. Uh, uh, big thing too is that for newer players, because the objective buildings at the top are really clear. Uh, you can kind of know what strategies to go for early in the game. Yeah. And that's a really, really good thing for design in general, because when your players know, have an idea of what they should do, it allows them to focus less on asking themselves questions of what am I supposed to do right. and focus more on playing and enjoying the game. Yeah, I think the art and the clarity of objectives kind of combine into making this game really approachable. It's not very yeah. intimidating compared to Terra Mystica, for example, where, you know, the game length is measured in the number of players you have and things can go on for a long time. Even though it has the same structure, you know, you have the same round structure, it's almost the same type of resource structure, even if, you know, there are obviously differences. This one feels more approachable because you know where you're going to get your points. You know where you're going with your strategy and you can just like build from there. I think it's way more approachable. Yeah, I, I think so too. And my, my above and below was one of my wife's first like complicated board games, but yeah. she was willing to play it because it was cute. Yeah, like, no. that, that's a real thing. It's I, kind I, of like an intro to worker placement games because yeah. it, it's inviting, you know. And it's and it's a good worker placement game. It's all like it's it's well designed and really well balanced. Yeah. But it's also like if you've never played harder board games or more complex board games, it you don't feel out of your element because it's not like oh I have to deal with all this like '80s style fantasy art and stuff. Uh huh. And so it, it's, it's, it's a nice place to get into the hobby as well, even though it's a more complicated game because it doesn't feel as complicated because you have clear decisions yeah, and you have that like visual, there's a lot of good visual cues too. For sure. Yeah. I think on the flip side, it's also a game that will draw you further into the board game hobby. It's a good intro yeah. and like, Instead of just being super easy and not having anything interesting, it's really easy and it also brings you into these concepts that are used throughout the board game industry. Definitely. Okay, so Dean, do you have any last thoughts before we give our ratings? Uh, no, I'm ready to give my ratings. Okay, Dean, what are you going to give it out of five sprockets? I am also going to give Above and Below four sprockets out of five. Okay. Uh, I'm. I really like this game, and it kind of fills some of the gaps that I didn't like about Terra Mystica. It's a really approachable, easy to kind of understand how you're going to play without sacrificing too much complexity. But at the same time, I feel like it doesn't have enough player interaction to make it really interesting with different players. And I find myself itching to play games where I can have strategies that are effective against certain other strategies. And like there's like a rock, paper, scissors, balance. Those kind of games are really the kind of games that really interest me. A term is kind of some of that, but I don't understand it. So I guess he doesn't get the five stars. Five sprockets. <laughs> Uh, I'm also going to give Above and Below four sprockets uh, because it is a really good game, but in, in the same vein, like your main player interaction is your ability to buy out of someone's strategy, but most of the time that's a bad idea anyway because you should just buy your strategy. Yeah, and you can sell I, you can sell resources to other players, but that happens pretty rarely, even in a, a four player game. Yeah. And so, like, it exists, but it's not, like, an element, a strong element of the game. Uh -huh. And I think in terms of the fact that you can't just, like, wreck your friend's day when this is, like, one of their newer games that they're into is really good. Yeah, I guess. But it, at the same time, it does fall off in... Uh, the depth there because it doesn't have that player interaction as well. 
Very good. However, uh, the one thing that I would say is that because other people are reading you the the random encounters in the caves, uh-huh. uh, that does give it feels like player interaction, even if you aren't affecting each other. Right. So you aren't just like sitting there and taking your turn and then your opponent just takes their turn. Right. You're still interacting with them, quote unquote, but you aren't interacting mechanically. Like the gameplay elements don't like interfere with your opponent's strategy, which I kind of crave in the board game. Uh, Yeah, definitely. So yeah, so that's a four, four sprockets overall for above and below, which four is still very good. And yeah, definitely well recommended from us. Yeah, four stars with the games that if someone suggests, I have no objection. Yeah, I say, yeah, sure, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Great. Okay, so next week we are going to be talking about luck and how you can mitigate luck or variance, especially in like dice games, card games, and how design of those games influences your ability to change variability. So thanks for listening to us this week. Please give us a look on iTunes and Google Play. Tell us what you think. Any review counts. We really appreciate your time. Let us know in the comments if there's anything that you think is really interesting you want to hear more about. And we'll be happy to take into account. Yeah. Catch you next week. Thanks so much.